University of Missouri Extension in Jackson has an office that conducts soil tests. You may or may not have been aware of that. Matter of fact, you can go out in your front yard or go out in your backyard and you can dig up a few handfuls of dirt and you can send it to them for a minimal fee. They'll analyze it for you. They'll put it under a microscope and they'll tell you exactly what that soil sample contains, exactly what's in that soil. In a couple of weeks, they'll send you a report and they'll tell you if your soil is good for growing things or if your soil may need some additives to make it more fertile. Every farmer, every gardener wants a fruitful harvest. However, every farmer and every gardener knows that not every seed that's planted grows. Sometimes you're disappointed. Not everything that's planted grows. Jesus teaches us about this problem in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Of all the parables that Jesus spoke, perhaps uh, not a single other parable is better known, more well known than the parable of the sower. In this parable, which is before us this morning... Spoken by Jesus, four kinds of soils that correspond to four types of hearts are spoken about. As you look into the mirror of God's word this morning, and I pray that we all will, every time that we open God's word, we need to be reminded that we are looking into a mirror. James tells us that, and we don't want to be that man who looks at himself intently in the mirror and then walks away and quickly forgets what he looked like. We want to be receivers of the word, appliers of the word, doers of the word. We want the word to search us and to know us, to expose us, to see us, to cast light on us, to reveal what really resides therein. And so as you, as well as myself, look into the mirror of God's word this morning, I pray that you would ask yourself, which soil or which heart best represents you, best reflects your own? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word. A rather lengthy text this morning, but that's okay. Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, pens the following words. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell along among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything else is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. 
where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while. And then when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline, several sub-points. You can take a break for a minute with your pen. Let me say a few things about verse 1 and 2 before we get specifically to your outline, though I would encourage you to take notes. You'll always listen better if you have the point of a pen pressed on paper. Let me note first here Jesus' teaching setting. The setting of Jesus' teaching was again at the sea. Look at verse 1 there. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. We noted last week that the sea, or that area beside the sea, has become a very common classroom for Jesus. He's moved away from the synagogues, and he's continued his teaching ministry outside of town, particularly along the Sea of Galilee. And here, masses flock to him. From every corner of Palestine, we, we, we noted last week that people literally came from the north, the east, the south, and the west to hear this man who preaches with, with unheard authority, who casts out demons and heals every disease and sickness. But Mark tells us here again in our text that a very large crowd gathered about him. There is an interesting grammatical emphasis in the text on the size of the crowd. Literally, it is a mighty or an immense multitude. The crowd was so large that Jesus had to retreat onto the boat or into the boat. If you can remember back to chapter 3, verse 9, that's where Jesus had his disciples have a, a boat ready because there was a very real and a very literal fear that the crowds might crush him. That's how immense the crowd was, how immense the multitude was. Mark tells us here that Jesus got into the boat, and he sat in it on the sea, and the crowd was beside the sea on the land. That's the visual picture you need to have in your mind here. The crowd was so large that Jesus here had to retreat onto the boat. It's possible that Jesus got into this boat uh, and waded out just a little bit into the Sea of Galilee for several reasons. First of all, again, there was a literal concern that he might be crushed. Second, the terrain that surrounded the Sea of Galilee would have sloped down into the sea. And so it would have made a, a, an amphitheater of sorts. The acoustics for Jesus' voice being broadcast would have been so much better if he had pushed out a bit into the sea. As a matter of fact, Israeli scientists have verified what they call the Bay of Parables can effectively transmit a human voice effortlessly to several thousand people on shore. And so Jesus being out a bit served as a megaphone so that his message was loud and clear to his hearers. Lastly, Jesus would have been able to be, have been seen 
uh, by the crowd by pushing out into the water. And so a small fishing boat became Jesus' pulpit for preaching. The neat picture here. The text literally says, Jesus entered the boat and sat on the sea. Jesus entered the boat and sat on the sea. That's kind of a a massaged out literal translation of the Greek text here. And while we can't be dogmatic about it, while we can't say this is for sure, it's very possible that Mark's alluding to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 29 verse 10. The psalmist said, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Think about that for a second. The Lord is the one who sits enthroned over the flood. Here is Jesus sitting on the fishing boat. The Lord, the Word became flesh. It's very possible that Mark is highlighting the deity of Christ here in verse 1. Jesus' teaching setting was the sea. Look at verse 2, though. Jesus' teaching method is very unique. Jesus' teaching method was parables. Look at verse 2 there. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, pause. We'll get to what he said to them here in a moment. Mark tells us that Jesus was, quote, teaching the crowd. The word teaching there is in the imperfect. What you need to know is that that was a continuous activity. Jesus was continually teaching the crowd. As the crowd continually amassed around him, he continually taught the crowd. It's a continual activity. Jesus taught the crowd here by way of parable, which was his preferred method of teaching in public. When, When Jesus was in the public sphere... When the crowds gathered, he oftentimes preferred to teach by way of parable. A parable is a spiritual illustration that teaches truth by comparison. It's the Greek word parabole, and it means to cast alongside or to throw alongside. When you think about a paramedic, same same word there, para, to come alongside, medic. We think of paraclete, speaking about the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside, the comforter, the one who ministers by your side. Well, here Jesus teaches a parable, a parable. It is a story or an illustration that comes alongside. Some of Jesus' parables were longer stories. Some of them were short similes or metaphors or analogies or proverbial sayings. But Jesus oftentimes taught using this method of parable to say this is like this or this is similar to this. A parable has oftentimes been spoken of as being an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus used these illustrations from from everyday life. He used fishing illustrations and farming illustrations and housekeeping illustrations and family illustrations and life illustrations and royalty illustrations and banquet illustrations to speak about heavenly things. Jesus would take what was very common, what was very familiar to the people, and he would relate it to that which was heavenly. Many of Jesus' parables were confounding They would knock their hearer off balance in such a way that they would force the hearer to to consider, to think about things in a new light. You know, a parable begins innocently, like a picture that arrests our attention and arouses our interest. But as we study Scripture, Scripture becomes to us like a mirror. It's not just a picture that we look at. It's also a mirror. It reflects back to us. We suddenly see ourselves. We see the reality of our hearts. We see the reality of our thoughts. We see the reality of our intentions and our motivations and our speech and our relationships and our work and everything else under the sun is reflected back to us in the mirror of God's word. 
And if we continue by faith, this mirror becomes a window through which we see God and his truth. The landscape around the Sea of Galilee was was dotted with, literally covered by farmland. And it's very possible that as Jesus pushed out in the boat here, into the Sea of Galilee, his eye caught a farmer who that day became the object lesson for the parable that Jesus would teach. Jesus' intention wasn't just to tell a story, it was to capture the hearts of the crowd that had gathered around him and force them, literally to arrest their hearts, arrest their minds, so that they would apply his teaching, think about and apply his teaching to their lives. Now, let me skip over a chunk of text here. We're going to come back to it. We said just a couple of words here uh, about Jesus' teaching setting. So just a couple of words here about Jesus' teaching method. Let me say a few words here about the purpose of parables. Let your eyes drop down in your Bible there to verses 10 through 13. Okay? Verses 10 through 13. This is what Mark writes here. And when he, Jesus, was alone, those around him with the twelve, so kind of an inner circle there. This is not the entire crowd, obviously. It's those around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may see, but not perceive, that they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? If not, how then will you understand all the parables? Now, this is a challenging small portion of scripture here. It's a a, a very difficult text. Verses 10 through 13 almost make it sound like Jesus doesn't want some people to understand the parables. And I can assure you that that is not the case here. God desires that all men should repent and come to a saving knowledge of Christ through the gospel. That is the heart of God. God doesn't always will, though, what he desires. God's not schizophrenic. He doesn't have mixed desires here. God God desires that all men be saved and come to a saving knowledge of Christ through the gospel. But God does not always will exactly what he desires. And that's what we see taking place here in verses 10 through 13. Mark is quoting Isaiah chapter 6 here. If you want to write out in the margins and go look back at it later, perhaps even your Bible footnotes this. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This may sound like a familiar text to you. Isaiah wrote, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their blind eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's challenging. It's a challenging piece of scripture to wrestle through here and to interpret. What does God mean here? Well, I think to answer that question, we have to ask another question, and that is, what was Jesus' reason for teaching in parables? Why did Jesus teach in parables? And the answer to that question is twofold. First, to conceal, and then to reveal. Parables concealed truth to one particular audience, while they revealed truth to another audience, oftentimes in the same group. 
or in the same sitting of people, the same gathering of people, you would have two distinct groups. Those who, who the word fell on deaf ears and those who the word fell on receptive, warm hearts gathered there together hearing the same message by the same preacher, the exact same words, yet two totally different responses to the same word preached. Friends, that happens in churches all across the globe every week. Matter of fact, it'll happen in here this morning. There are people in here this morning and subsequent Sunday mornings and previous Sunday mornings who will hear and have heard the word preached and the word falls on deaf ears. And there are those of you who, like Paul wrote, are cut to the quick, cut to the core, splayed open by the word of God. And you receive it in humility. Jesus taught in parables to do two things, to conceal and to reveal. We see these two audiences here. Jesus said, to you, speaking to those around him and the twelve, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But he said, speaking about another group, but for those outside, everything else is in parables. Jesus concealed truth from those whose hearts were hard and he revealed it to those whose hearts were soft and prepared to receive it. There's tension here too. There's tension in these handful of verses between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. All men everywhere are called to repent and believe. Every boy and every girl, every man, every woman, every young person, and every old person, and everyone in between has the personal responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. Yet at the same time, there must be a supernatural working of God in a person's heart before they can. Both are true. Both are taught side by side in Scripture, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. I know it's been a while, but, but if you want some more of this, you can go back and visit our website and, and look at the teaching there in Ephesians chapter 1, back a couple of years ago. Uh, there's some good teaching there uh, where, by God's grace, I, I hope I will help you understand some of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God must supernaturally open a man's heart to hear, receive, and respond to the truth of the gospel. At the same time, all men are without excuse for their hardness of heart and their rejection of the gospel. All soils are responsible to receive the seed of the gospel, but only God can make that seed germinate. Both are true simultaneously. Your Bible teaches them both, places them both side by side without error or contradiction. Mystery to us, not a mystery to the mind of God. Parables conceal truth from the hard-hearted, and they reveal truth to the humble-hearted. What's the application here? The application is pray for a humble, soft heart. Pray that God would give you and me a humble, soft, receptive heart to his word. Here's what we have going on in the text here this morning. The chunk of scripture that we just looked over, which we're going to look back at it here in just a second. Verses 3 through 9. This is the parable stated. Jesus teaches his parable to the crowd there in verses 3 through 9. And then what he does is he follows back up immediately in verses 13 through 20, and he explains it. So the parable stated in verses 3 through 9, and the parable explained in verses 13 through 20. Now, by God's grace, what I'm going to seek to do here is to synthesize those two sections of Scripture together and deal with them simultaneously. Okay? 
Here's what we need to do first. This is the first point of your outline if you're taking notes here. Uh, we, we need to look at the parts of the parable here. Three things. Let me go ahead and give them to you. One, two, and three. It's the sower, the seed, and the soils. That's one, two, and three on your outline this morning. The sower, the seed, and the soils. I'm going to say just a few brief words about each of those, and then we will deal with, with the remainder of our time speaking specifically about these four types of soils that Jesus has clearly communicated in our text this morning. The sower. The sower comes to us in verses 3 and in verse 14. This is what Jesus says here in verse 3. He says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Let me stop right there. That's what the sower does. The sower sows. It's interesting to note that Jesus' parable begins with a summons to hear or to listen. It's the Greek word akuo. It's where we get our English word acoustics. Jesus says, listen up. Give me your ear. This is an imperative here or a command that highlights urgency and importance. Friends, are you hearing this morning? Are your ears open? Have you already in the last minute and a half prayed for a soft and receptive heart? Listen, 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 Jesus says. The sower is to be heard. Now, the sower in this specific parable is Jesus. Though he doesn't name himself, the, the application is broad. But the sower in this text is Jesus. Jesus also intended that his, immediately, or that his immediate disciples and also all those believers who came after them would be about the sowing business. Let me pause right there for a moment. Are we sowing? Are you sowing? Am I sowing? Have you sowed in the last 168 hours? In the last week, is there a, a person, an individual, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, an acquaintance, someone in your sphere of influence? God has given you relationships for a purpose that is not primarily about you. Are you, are you using your sphere of God-given influence to impact others with the truth of the gospel? Are you, are you casting seed? Are you sowing the seed of the gospel? May come in a brief conversation here, a more extended conversation here. Someone's mother passes away here and you have an open door. Are you sowing the seed? Tragedy uh, occurs in someone's life and, and now all of a sudden they have ears to hear. Are you sowing? Are you sowing? Are you broadcasting the gospel? The seed of the gospel. Everywhere we go, like a broadcast spreader. Uh, every gentleman in here probably has one uh, in, their, in their shed or in their garage. Every household probably owns one. Uh, and that's one of those green broadcast spreaders. Okay, this is about the time, actually you probably have missed it a little bit, uh, if you're going to put some seed down, but this is about the time of year where you would get that guy out and you would fill it with seed and you would walk lines through your yard. And that broadcast seed sower would spit out seed all over your yard. In a spiritual sense, are we doing that everywhere we go? To the supermarket, to the gas station, to work, to church, to the funeral home, next door, wherever you go. Jesus first introduces us to the sower here in his parable. Secondly, he introduces us to the seed. There again in verse 3, Jesus says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Well, to sow what? To sow seed. The seed represents God's word here. And like seed, the word of God is alive and it's able to produce spiritual fruit. The writer of Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. 
It's living, it's active. Every one of these gospel seeds that we sow in them lies, lies the power of God to bring salvation to whomever receives it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you preach the gospel, that when those gospel seeds go out contained in those gospel seeds, so long as the gospel seed has fidelity to the word of God, in other words, that we're preaching the gospel that has been handed down to us, revealed in the scriptures, so long as we're preaching that gospel and that gospel alone, within the seeds of that gospel message are the potential of the power of God to bring salvation to whomever receives it. Let me say this, friends. There, there is nothing wrong with uh, the seed that we've been given. Sometimes we think that if our seed were a little bit easier for people to receive, sometimes we think if our, if our seed uh, were, were just a little bit more palatable to people, they'd come to Christ. If we just alter it a bit, just make it a little bit easier to swallow, that it goes down a little bit easier, that if we would soften it or smooth the seed's edges, if we would just retool it for our 21st century culture, people might receive it a little better. Friends, don't. Don't park there. Don't park there. That is not a privilege that has been given to us in any way, shape, or form, and every single heresy that has ever been can be tracked back to it. A retooling of the gospel. It won't save anybody. Making our message more palatable won't save anybody. Now, let me say this. We want to be gracious. We want to be kind. We want our words to be seasoned with salt. We want to make a ready and an applicable defense for the hope that is within us. We want to do it with gentleness and kindness and respect and with honor. We don't want to set up roadblocks for people responding to the gospel, but we do not change the gospel message. We do not retool it so that it fits our current culture. The word, the seed, it's the same message that has been for the last 2,000 years. We have no business tampering with it. It's God's message, not ours. He has entrusted us with it. It's the message of the coming of Christ, his dying in place of sinners, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's the message that God uses to spiritually resurrect the dead. To give new life to the lost. That people might be born again by the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, the seed of the gospel. So the problem isn't with the sower. The problem's not with the seed. What Jesus is going to communicate here in our text here is there is a problem with the soil. The problem with the soil. That's number three on your outline. They're the soils. And it's interesting to know that this parable is called the parable of the sower, but the main emphasis of Jesus is not on the sower, neither is the main emphasis of Jesus the seed. The main point of this parable is the soils. It's the condition of the soil that the seed falls on. And so for that reason, and, and I, I'm not about to say something that's blasphemous here, you do know that the subtitles in your Bible are not divinely inspired, correct? Correct. The text there is divinely inspired. It's inerrant so long as it's accurate to the original. But those subtitles, even, even the verse uh, breakups in your Bible, we've put those there as a helpful aid. And so my saying this would better be referenced, the parable of the soils, is not to say anything blasphemous. That's what Jesus made the main point of this parable. 
Now, the soils here represent the varying condition of the human hearts upon which the seed falls or upon which the seed was scattered. And there are four types of soils, again, that correspond to four hearts that Jesus speaks about in verses 3 through 9 and then explains in verses 13 through 20. And I'm going to seek to synthesize those for you in the time that we have left this morning. And so let's look at them individually here. A on your outline is this. The first soil is the hard soil. And I've written it to you in a question. Okay? The question is, is the soil of your heart hard? I've written it in a question because it's a question I want you to ask yourself. It's not a question I want you to be sitting there thinking about your neighbor or your grandma or your mother or your children or the person that works next to you. The question is to you, friends, and the question is to me. Is the soil of your heart hard? Look at your Bible there. Look what Jesus says in verse 4. This is the parable uh, communicated here. Jesus says, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. That was was what Jesus preached. Now, Jesus interpreted verse 4 in verse 15. Look at verse 15. You may need to turn a page depending on how your Bible is set up there. But Jesus interprets verse 4 in verse 15. And he says, this is to his disciples and those close ones sitting around. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Here's what you need to know. The fields in Palestine, which is the whole region that Jesus is ministering to here. It's the whole region in which the name of Christ has become famous. Not just Galilee. It's the whole region of Palestine here. Looked a whole lot different agriculturally than the United States does or a lot of the rest of the world does today. You're flown in an airplane and look at the window. You're very familiar with what fields look like from the top down. But fields in Palestine often looked very different. They were long, narrow strips that were divided, crisscrossed literally, by footpaths, paths for foot travel. And the constant compacting by feet and hooves and wheels on these paths that that cut through the fields oftentimes made the soil almost impenetrable on these paths. Inevitably, as a farmer sowed his seed, as he, as he broadcast his seed, some of the seed would fall along this footpath. These seeds were unable to penetrate the dense surface. Mark tells us that birds quickly came to gobble up the seeds. And then again, Jesus interprets this to his disciples by saying, the birds are Satan and his cohort. Friends, you can rest assured that Satan is actively trying to scoop up seeds right now. Every time the word of God is preached, Satan is not sitting idly by, he's active, ready to come in and snatch and scoop up and steal and remove the seeds of the word that are preached. He'll do it by way of distraction. Maybe it's a cell phone that rings in here. Maybe it's a crying baby. Maybe it's somebody next to you has to get. However, maybe it's a text message. He'll do it by way of distraction. He does it by way of entertainment. He does it by way of apathy. There are a myriad of ways that our crafty, cunning enemy and adversary, Satan, will come and snatch away the seed. But rest assured, every time that the gospel is preached, Satan is present and he's active. Sometimes he fans into flame their disinterest in a person's heart or distraction. He's always quick to ensure that the seed stays on the surface if it stays on the path at all. 
These dense paths represented the hardened hearts of those who heard God's word, but because of their own busy comings and goings, because of their frantic traffic of life, their hearts have become hardened to God's truth, and God's word no longer stirs them. God's word fails to stir their hard hearts. This soil represents the hard heart of a person who doesn't permit the word of God to penetrate its surface. These are the people that are in control of their own lives. They've got it all together. They don't need any help. Christianity is just a crutch. They have all the answers. They're unteachable. The word of God falls upon deaf ears. Or maybe even they say, yeah, sometime later in life. J.C. Ryle notes that there is hardly a church or chapel where scores of these types of people are not found. At times, these people can be hostile to the gospel, but oftentimes we just see them disinterested, just disinterested in the gospel. They don't see God's truth as being relevant to them. They're too busy or too, too interested in other things to be bothered by spiritual things. This is a warning to us as a culture, as a generation, who are oftentimes on the go. That foot traffic and that hoof traffic and that wheel traffic of your on-the-go lifestyle, your busy, 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 gotta, 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 get it done lifestyle can create a hard, impenetrable heart towards the things of the gospel. This heart here, this hard heart needs to be broken. It needs to be plowed up. Oftentimes, plowing is what is needed in someone's life, and God's plowing oftentimes comes by way of pain or trial or adversity. Isn't it interesting and maybe this is true of some of you here this morning. As a matter of fact, I know it's true of some of you here this morning. That the gospel took root in your heart on the back end of some trial and some difficult life circumstances. God oftentimes uses those trials and those difficult circumstances of living in a Genesis 3 fallen world to plow up the hard-heartedness in our hearts. Second question I want you to consider here. Is the soil of your heart shallow? For some, the soil of your heart is hard. It's impenetrable. For some, the soil of your heart is shallow. Jesus speaks the parable in verses 5 and 6. Look at your Bible there. Other soil fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Now, Jesus explains this, interprets it to his disciples in verses 16 and 17. Look there. Again, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. Then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Just like the agricultural landscape was a lot different in Palestine than it is here, long strips of farming land crisscrossed by footpaths, so the soil composition was a lot different in Palestine than it is in different places of the world. Much of the land in Palestine is covered by a mere two to three inches of soil that covers a very dense and hard limestone bedrock. The shallow heart is like the layer of soil over this bedrock. 
The hearing of the word for these individuals produces a temporary impression, but it produces no deep and lasting and abiding effect. The shallow heart is oftentimes representative of the emotional hearer. This person quickly and eagerly accepts the word of God. They spring up quick. They look vibrant. They're marked by enthusiasm and joy. But when trials and tribulation and persecution and suffering come, the enthusiasm vanishes and the joy disappears. It's the tendency of our fallen human nature to counterfeit religious feelings. I, uh, as a college minister, dealt with this oftentimes and see it even today as a pastor. Uh, Those who hear the word, be it at a conference uh, or at some retreat, and they, they, they make an emotional response to what they hear, and they come back all jazzed and torqued and fired up and ready to go. But as soon as difficult circumstances arise, they fizzle out. The fire that seemed to be there is no longer lit. Their spiritual vitality has no more life in it than the cut flower. Jesus reminds us that it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. He tells us that we can have assurance of salvation. But he also tells us, and both are true, that it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Matthew 23, 14. That's important for us to note here that Jesus isn't talking about carnal Christians here. I don't don't even like that term. I like that that word. That that word is not a a great Christian vocabulary word. Speak in terms of carnal Christians. Uh, Those are Christians who don't just, or they, they just don't reach full maturity. Or they backslide. That's another word we've got to be careful with. Superficial, superficial Christianity has no roots and no preserving endurance. The problem with these people here with these shallow hearts is that they have not counted the cost of discipleship. Friends, let me encourage you, don't try to use emotion to manipulate people into a spiritual response to the gospel. Now, let me tell you what I didn't just say. I didn't just say that emotion is bad. And I didn't just say that you should keep your emotions at bay. Don't manipulate people with emotion so that they make a merely temporal decision for Christ. Be very careful. Very careful there. You must understand the parable of the soils as you scatter your seed. Likewise, don't just assume that every profession of faith is authentic. That doesn't mean that we go around second-guessing everyone, like, not really sure if he's a Christian or she's a Christian or they're a Christian or he's a Christian or you should have heard what he said or she said or where he went or where she went or what he looked at. You know, we don't need to second guess everyone. Fruit. Fruit will be the evidence of a true believer's life. Okay? Fruit will tell the truth about a person. It'll be good fruit or it'll be bad fruit, but fruit always tells the truth. Okay? An apple tree's not going to deny itself. An orange tree's not going to deny itself. Okay? Fruit always tells the truth. But we don't just need to assume that every profession of faith is authentic. Don't be surprised when you see people falling away, so to speak, who previously professed faith in Christ. If our concept of the gospel is just that Jesus comes in to take all of our problems away, that everything else is smooth sailing in life, then those people who hear that message may spring onto it, they may latch onto it, but they will oftentimes fall away when trials or hardship or persecution come along. Is the soil of your heart shallow? Look at the third soil that Jesus speaks of here. It's the thorny soil. 
Is the soil of your heart thorny? Look at verse 7. Jesus said, Other seed fell along the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. He helps his disciples understand what he means here. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus interprets this third type of soil. He says, And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, the thorn bushes that Jesus speaks of here in this parable would not have been visible from the surface. Farmers in Palestine would oftentimes cut thorn bushes off at the surface. And so looking at the field, it would be thornless. But what lurked below the surface was the root system, the entrenched root system of these thorn bushes. Farmers would have burned off everything that was above the surface, but left the roots intact in the ground. And when the seed was sown on on this type or this patch of ground, it would germinate, but the entrenched thorns would also sprout and would choke out the seed before it could produce any fruit. The thorny heart pictures the person who receives the word of God, but who wants to hold on to the things of the world at the same time. That's that's the picture of this heart here, the thorny heart. I want to hold on to Christianity, but I want to hold on to the things of the world at the same time. I want to have one foot on on solid ground, but I want to have one foot in the world as well. I want to mingle with Jesus, but date the world. It's the thorny heart here. The thorny heart. This person wants to walk the broad way and the narrow way at the same time. A.W. Tozer once said this, he said, if your Christian conversion does not reverse the direction of your life, if it did not transform you, then you are not converted. There has not been genuine repentance if there is no change of heart, no change of life, no direction change. That I've turned my back on my sin and I've turned my face upon Christ. So repentance means metanoia, it means to change your mind. It means to take your hands out of the cookie jar and to cling to Christ. The thorny heart here is representative of the double-minded person who wants salvation, who wants Christ, who wants the kingdom, but wants all the wants and riches of the world as well. It's interesting to note here, look at your Bible. Jesus notes three sets of thorns that we need to be on guard against. Look at them here. You might want to write them down. This would be something I would encourage you to write down here. Thorn set number one are the cares of the world. These are thorns of worry. The cares of the world. These are the thorns of worry, and they will come in and choke out gospel seeds. A literal translation here is merimna tu auton. It's distractions of the age. It's what Mark tells us here. This first set of thorns are distractions of the age. We're full of worries and anxieties and concerns. We're we're obsessed with a lot of things. Our well-being, our jobs, our business, our parenting, our homes, our mortgages, our bank accounts, our 401ks, retirement. Oftentimes things that are tethered to this world, things that we won't take with us. We're so worried and anxious and concerned about. The word worry means to be divided up. We're so consumed with making a living. These thorny worries just shoot up and they will strangle the word right out of our hearts. 
Remember what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6? He says, seek first my kingdom. And all these things will be added on to you. Why, do you. why do you worry about what you'll eat or your drink or what you'll wear? Pagans run after those things. The one who has every hair on your head numbered knows your needs before you even ask of them. Don't be choked out by the thorns of worry, the cares of this world. The second set of thorns here is the deceitfulness of riches. That's the thorns of wealth. Thorns of worry first, thorns of wealth second. This is, this is the desire to keep up with the Joneses here. This involves buying things you don't need to impress people that you don't like with money that you don't have. The story was once told of a young man who proposed to a young girl, and this young lady had an incredibly divided heart. This is what he said to her. He said, darling, I want you to know that I love you more than anything else in this world, and I want you to marry me. I'm not rich, and I don't have a yacht or a Rolls Royce like Johnny Brown, but I do love you with all my heart. And she thought for a minute and then replied, I love you with all my heart too, but tell me more about Johnny Brown. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Or he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you can't serve God in money, you can't serve God in anything else as preeminent. Likewise, Paul told Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evils. He didn't say it was evil, it's the root of all evils. And it'll choke out the word. It'll choke out that soft and tender, receptive heart to the gospel. The third set of roots here, or thorns rather, is the desire for things. This is the thorns of wants. You have thorns of worry, thorns of wealth, and thorns of wants here. Friends, we are often, and I am so convicted as I even say it, I'm one of you. I don't have this all nailed down or pinned up. I'm imperfect in every way, but we are so often discontent and dissatisfied. We always want more, bigger, and better. We have this insatiable desire for something else. It's interesting for us to remember that Jesus told another parable in Luke chapter 12. This is what he said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. For this very night your soul will be required of you. And all these things which you have prepared will be gone. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth and miss heaven. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Third and lastly here, we'll land the plane. We'll do it rather abruptly and rather hard. You ready? Buckle up. D on your outline here. This fourth type of soil is the fertile soil. Oh, this is the soil that I hope we all have in our hearts this morning. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus explains here. He says, the other seeds fell onto good soil and it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. Let me pause right there. Uh, are you hearing? There's an emphasis all throughout this text on hearing. Now, Jesus explains it in verse 20. Look at your Bible there. He interprets, he says, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. They bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Friends, this is the soil that is representative of a genuine believer. The seed of God's word doesn't bounce off this heart. The seed of God's word doesn't momentarily flourish and then wither away. The seed of God's word isn't divided by competing desires and so strangled out. This heart allows God's word to take deep and abiding root in it. 
And when God's word takes root in a heart, fruitfulness is the result. Look at your Bible then. It grows up and it increases, yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold. Fruitfulness is always the result of true abiding conversion. If you're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone, the new has come, fruit will be evident. That looks different in our lives. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But we'll all be growing and we'll all be bearing and producing fruit. Is it true of you? Fruit is always the evidence of true salvation. A heart that has received the implanted word, James 1.21, produces a harvest of character. Where Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Have you been crucified with Christ and no longer live? You're living by faith in the Son of God who died for you and lives today. Notice the ongoing activity of those who have fertile hearts. Look at verse 20 again. Mark says, but those who were sown, who onward were sown, the good soil, they heard the word, they received or accepted the word, and they put the word into action. They began bearing fruit. Are those things true of you? Do you hear the word? Do you receive it? with gladness and joy and humility, with a soft heart, and then do you put it into action? Friends, good soil is not natural. Hard soil is natural. You go out there into the world with a shovel or a spade, and what you'll find is that hard soil is what is natural. Just leave the ground the way it is, and it will be rocky. It'll be weedy. That's the natural way. Something has to happen to soil to make it good soil. It's got to be broken up. The hard ground has to be broken up. The weeds have to be taken out. Who can do that? Well, let me tell you that God alone can do that. And he's willing, ready, and able. Have you come to him? Do you have that new heart that is characterized by warmth towards the gospel, receptiveness towards God's word? Is it fertile so the seed of God's word can grow? Which heart do you have beating in you this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is uh, living and active. Thank you that it searches us. Thank you that it uh, challenges us. It reveals uh, to us who we really are. It mirrors back the, the heart that resides within. And Lord, I pray this morning that as your word is preached, as it goes out, it would not uh, return uh, empty-handed or void, but it would accomplish the very purpose for which you sent it. Lord, bring about repentance in all of us, whether it's first-time repentance and faith and conversion for some, and that it's repentance and faith and growth for others. Make it be so for the name, the glory, and the renown of your son, Jesus Christ.